Hello, welcome to episode 42 of 10 Zero. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. Are you still riled up from last episode? Yes. We're bulk recording, just so you know. So we're still <laughs> riled up from, <laughs> from the McCanns. <laughs> I don't know. Like, that whole, that whole situation. Like, they handed you the killer on a silver fucking platter and you just let her walk. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. Go listen to that one if you want to know why we're frustrated. Yes. How about that? <laughs> if you haven't listened to that one, why are you not going in over? You know, <laughs> I, I've been binging it, and that's why we drink, right? Right. So, some people listen to it That's. I can't. Like why when, would you do that? My, so, when my Apple podcast decides to, like, start the newest one first. No. I'm like, wait a minute. What nope. the fuck are you doing? Go to nope, the end. Nope, nope, nope. nope. Go back. <laughs> so, I have two things in chronological order. Unless it's watching Star Wars, because... Well, that's acceptable. That order's fucking wrong, and I don't care who you are. George Lucas can suck my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. The way that those were put out... Fuck it, A. the order that they are supposed to be Suck in. my ass. <laughs> Grandma, I'm sorry. <laughs> Christ. Anyway. What's our true crime practice today? Get out of here. Maybe I can stop laughing long enough to do Shit. it. Shit. All right. We're going to go to before I turn nine years old. March 18th of 1999. That was six. My birthday was... Five days after that? Yeah, five days after that. On March 18th of 1999, a charred rental car in a remote wooded area of Long Barn, California is discovered. Fun, fun. A day later, the bodies of Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso are found in the trunk. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. The women, along with son's daughter, Julie, had been missing since February when they were last seen alive at the Cedar Lodge near Yosemite National Park. Oh, there it is. Julie's son's body was found 30 miles away a week later after the car was found. There it is. Found it. Yes. The mysterious disappearance of the three women had drawn national attention and landed them on the Cool magazine. Oh. Compounding the mystery, Carolson's wallet had been found on a street in downtown Modesto, California, three days after they had disappeared. Oh. Well, Police... that's a little bit of a hike. Right. <laughs> Police and the FBI initially focused their investigation on Eugene Dykes, Michael Larwick, and a group of methamphetamine users in Northern California. However, all these leads went up in smoke when... Joey Roth Armstrong, a 26-year-old Yosemite park worker, was brutally killed and decapitated near her cabin in the park. Christ! You don't remember this? I feel like I should. You should. Did you cover this one? The discovery of her body led investigators to Carrie Stainer, a 37-year-old man who worked at the Cedar Lodge Motel where the sons were last seen. Stainer was tracked down in the nudist colony in Northern California. Stainer confessed to the murder of Armstrong and then surprised the detectives by admitting he was also responsible for the murders of Sons and Peloso. 
Stainer had been on the other end of another high-profile crime years earlier. His younger brother, Stephen, was abducted in Merced when Carrie was 11 years old. Stephen Stainer was held for more than seven years by sexual abuser Kenneth Parnell. Following his escape, the television movie, I Know My First Name is Stephen, dramatized the incident. Stephen Stainer died in a tragic motorcycle accident when he was 24. The family saw further tragedy when Jesse Stainer, Carrie and Stephen's uncle, was shot to death in 1990 during a bungled robbery attempt. Stainer pled guilty to the Armstrong murder in 2001. He was convicted of the other three counts of murder in 2002 and sentenced to death. I'm pretty sure... Did you cover that? He was arrested... Or am I just dumb? Hold on. Give me a second. I'm pretty sure he was one of our true crime fact of the days. August 27th? Did we have an episode that came out? I don't know. Yes. So I'm assuming, depending on which episode that is. He was our true crime pack of the day. I thought that sounded familiar. So, previous 8-6, was episode 16. He was our Zodiac true crime pack of the day. There you go. Ding dong. That's why it should sound familiar. <laughs> well, you went first last time, so I'll go first this time. Okay. So, have a true crime or a paranormal per se. Close enough. Um, we're gonna dive into sleep paralysis. I so, they're conspiracy theories. So, I think. I mean, could. yeah. So, we're gonna get into why it happens, kind of. So, what is sleep paralysis? It's a feeling of being conscious but being unable to move. It occurs when a person passes between stages of wakefulness and sleep. During these transitions, you may be unable to move or speak for anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes. Some people report feeling pressure and a sense of choking. Sleep paralysis may accompany other sleep disorders such as narcolepsy, which does not sound fun to me. Narcolepsy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, falling asleep whenever I want would be great. But Marcus thinks that I have narcolepsy because, like, the moment I get comfortable and I get warm, I fall asleep. I mean, so do I, but so, like, I can sit on the couch and then 10 minutes be asleep. Oh, yeah. So, when does it happen? It can occur between or at one of two points during your sleep cycle. I'm going to butcher these two words. <laughs> Hardcore. <laughs> Hip, uh, hypnagogic, I think. Um, if it happens while you're falling asleep, it's called hypnagogic or pre dormital sleep paralysis. So as your body starts to fall asleep, it slowly relaxes. Become less aware of your surroundings and don't notice the changes. Okay. 
if you remain or become aware while falling asleep, you will notice you are not able to move or speak. Okay. okay. Hypnopompic is if it happens as you're waking up, that's called post-orbital sleep paralysis. During sleep, your body alternates between REM, which is rapid eye movement, and NREM, non-rapid eye movement sleep. One cycle of REM and NREM sleep lasts between or lasts about 90 minutes. Um, NREM sleep occurs first and takes up to 75% of your overall sleep time. During NREM sleep, your body relaxes and restores itself. And at the end of the NREM phase, you sleep, you shift into REM sleep. Your eyes move quickly and dreams occur, but the rest of your body remains relaxed. Your muscles are turned off. Yeah, until you have that, like, (laughs) Yeah. If you become aware before the REM cycle has finished, you may notice that you cannot move or speak. All right. Who's susceptible to sleep paralysis? Four out of every ten people have experienced sleep paralysis. I'm not one of those four. Thank you very much. This is a common condition that is often noticed during the early-ish teen years. Factors that are linked to sleep paralysis include a laundry of bullshit, including lack of sleep, sleep schedule that changes, i.e. us, <laughs> mental conditions, changes. <laughs> mental conditions such as stress or bipolar disorder, PTSD. sleeping on your back, um, other sleep issues such as narcolepsy or nighttime leg cramps, use of certain medications such as those for ADHD and substance abuse. That explains you have sleep paralysis and you haven't told me no okay but like so think about like the movies where you know it's paranormal for you to have sleep paralysis right nine times out of ten those people are running high stress because mm-hmm. they're freaking themselves the fuck out mm-hmm. they're like acting sporadic like those have add or adhd do A lot of times it's associated with, like, like a pain that wakes them up. Yeah. I.e. the leg cramping. Mm-hmm. So. So, I have a list of um, experiences, if you will. Okay. Um. I found them all from BuzzFeed, so thank you, BuzzFeed. Okay. 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 Um, first one. <laughs> I've been having the same dream regularly since I was a child. I wake up, and I'm in my bed. There's someone in the house. I can hear the footsteps moving around, coming up the stairs slowly. If I stay still, maybe the person will come for me. I can hear him coming down the hall, and I can see his shadow. He's a minotaur. He has a knife, and he's coming for me. I scream. I wake up relieved, except there's someone at the bedroom door, and this time I can't scream. Okay, so that is more of like a night terror type thing. Yeah. Like, sleep paralysis in a dream is completely different than sleep paralysis in person. Yes. That is more of like a night terror type experience, I guess. 
where it feels fucking real, but it's really not. Right. So, next. Uh-huh. It happens every time I fall asleep on my back. I wake up and I can't tell if my eyes are open or shut, but I can see my whole room. A dark presence is lurking on top of my wardrobe, and as soon as I notice it, I try and scream, but I can't scream and I can't move. The darkness slithers down the side of my wardrobe, across the floor, and looms on my bed. Then it creeps all over me, trying to invade every orifice. I feel an immense pressure, like it has pinned me down and is pushing its way into my ears, eyes, and mouth. The darkness then screams a terrible screech into my face, and I try to scream back until eventually I manage to jerk my head, and everything disappears, and I'm alone in the darkness. That is That's more... like succubus kind of shit. Yes. That is more of... I wouldn't even say succubus. Yeah, succubus is... Uh, succubi. Okay, gotta use the proper term. Uh, they are more... I think I just found next week's episode. Anyway. <laughs> they're more to, like, entice you to lure you into doing things you don't want to do. Whereas this is trying to invade their personal space. Yeah. This is more demon-like. Whereas when you think of a succubus, you think of someone attractive, someone telling you all the things you want to hear to make you want to go somewhere with them, as opposed to, oh, it's just a looming like black mist that's trying to force its way into my body. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that being said, this is more of a fear-induced sleep paralysis type thing. Yeah. Which is feasible. It's just one of those things where I believe this happening more than, like, the lucid dream. So, I see manifestations of horror in my bedroom at least once a week, from random people chilling on a chair at the bottom of my to creepy old ladies to swarms of flying ants or bats. The worst thing I saw was someone hanging right above my head. I couldn't move. I wanted to cry. I couldn't sleep in my room for a few days after that. The likelihood of it happening increases whether there's someone in my bed. This is mega awkward. Recently, some Tinder dude told me in the morning that I was like the fucking exorcist last night, and he wasn't talking about activities that happened when I was awake. So... Yeah, that would be more of like a lucid dream, night terror type thing. My worst experience with sleep paralysis was after I'd been up all night doing an essay. When I finished, I immediately dozed off. The next thing I knew, I thought I had completely woken up, except there was a shadow demon looming over at the end of my bed. It didn't have a face, but I could feel it staring at me, and it felt like pure evil. I tried with my whole body to scream, but nothing came out. It made me panic more. I felt like the demon was about to attack me, then his head twitched to the side and he pounced on my chest, sort of thrashing at me. It felt like he was suffocating me. I tried to close my eyes and put all my energy into trying to wake up and move my body, the whole time with the demon hallucination still attacking me. When I was finally fully awake, I lay in bed for about half an hour shaking and next to tears. No, thank you. But even still, like, most of these experiences, there's some type of hallucination that comes with them. And I feel like if it were actual, like, sleep paralysis instead of, like, 
the fear induced that you see in movies that's like romanticized, I guess, in movies. Listen, quit trying to poke holes in all my stories, I'm okay? Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I promise. I will. I will. Because the more that we talk about it, the more it's making sense. Yeah. So. Why are you not telling me? I've had a reoccurring nightmare. I mean, same. Since I was like 12. And I wake up and I feel like I'm drowning. And I can't move. No, that would be some I'm, I'm gasping for air. But I don't remember the dream. I don't remember the nightmare. All I remember is feeling stuck. Like Marcus has had to wake me up because I'm literally choking. Yeah. And I can't move. Sounds about right. I once had a woman in black experience after watching the film where I woke with a heavy weight on my chest. And in the corner of my eye, I thought I could see someone at the end of my bed. The figure had a large hat and black veil hanging down over its face. It started to stamp and scream at me as if to get me to look at it. I'm assuming so that I would die like in the film. I couldn't move. I was laid on my back with my head to the side and remember trying to move to pick up a glass to throw at the figure, but my arms wouldn't work. When I came around, I burst into tears in one of the most terrifying experiences I've had and still to this day can't sleep on my back. No, thank you. There's that key word at the beginning of that story. Mm -hmm. They watched the movie. Yeah. I'd woken up in my dorm room. It was a stormy night and around four in the morning and still quite dark, though there was yellowish orange light from the street lamp outside. The window at the foot of my bed had been left cracked open and was banging in the wind. I got up to shut it and stumbled back to my bed, laying on my right side facing the wall with my eyes closed. It began with tactile hallucinations. I felt as if a pair of slightly clammy hands with thick fingers were stroking my face, in particular my lips, eyes, and ears, and prodding at my mouth. Eventually, this gave way to perkling pins and needles all over my body, and I felt very cold and buzzing as if I were electrified or covered in static shocks. At the same time, a heavy ringing began in my ears, very loud and in an even tone. It was at this point I got the sensation that there was someone else in the room very close to me. I was able to open my eyes, and I felt this weight pressing down on the side of my ribs and shoulder. The light from the street was blocked by shadow, and I realized the shadow had a solid form, a squat creature with cat-like features and claws, though humanoid and compact. It was about three to four feet tall, sitting on top of me. It had pointed ears and pale yellow eyes with no pupils. I couldn't distinguish its face beyond the outline and its glowing eyes. I know this was a demonic force of some sort, and I tried to scream. It felt, sorry, I felt the air leaving my throat, but only heard a faint whimper. I don't know how long this lasted, but eventually it was gone, and I was able to move. I got up and turned my bedside light and sat up till dawn. Fuck that. They had me until the cat like feet. It can look like anything. Right, but it's... There's one... I don't remember what pack... I think it was in That's Why We Drink. There was somebody that had like a... I don't remember what they described it as, but it had like the mouth that was covering its entire face with like the mm-hmm. million rows of like shark teeth yeah. like sitting on their chest screaming. Or hanging down from the ceiling. In their face. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I think I don't. 
really associate the fear factor of things with sleep paralysis to be plausible. Like, I feel like that's more of, like, the hallucination that comes with the night terror associated with it. I've never had it. I hope never to, because, you know, no. Because, like, (laughs) with mine, I don't remember the dream. I just remember that I wake up choking and unable to move. Unless someone else is waking me up. Sounds about right. But I don't remember the fear that comes with it. Aside from me waking up and fearing for my life because I can't fucking breathe. Right. Like, so I don't know. Like, I'm kind of skeptical on the whole thing. Never had it. Hope to not ever have it. So... to New York. Okay. So, Netflix has brought on a whole new world of documentaries. (laughs) And it it kills me because I sit there and I'm supposed to be going to bed in the morning and I'm glued to Netflix. It's fine. So, this last one takes you to New York and we're going to talk about someone who was born in 1946. Um, And he was known as the Times Square Killer. That's fun. Otherwise known as the Torso Killer. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So we're going to go back to the very beginning. Many serial killers are known for having troubled childhoods and come from broken homes. Mm-hmm. But Richard Cunningham, who was born in the Bronx of New York, grew up mostly in New Jersey in a comfortable Catholic household. Mm-hmm. So he did struggle making friends in school as a teenager. Um, he ended up joining cross country and track teams. He graduated from high school in 1964 and was a computer operator at Metropolitan Life, where okay. his father was a, the vice president. Mm-hmm. So, in 1966, he accepted a position with Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, where he worked until his arrest in 1980. He married in 1970 and had three children with his wife, Janet. Oh. Before police suspected him of murder, he was arrested on several like minor offenses, like OWI mm-hmm. in 1969 and shoplifting in 72. Okay. He spent less than a week in jail for the charges and paid $100 in combined fines. Um, in 1973, things escalated when he was charged with robbery, sexual assault, and sodomy in New York. Well likely with a Times Square, but the case was dismissed. So flat, fast forward to December 2nd, 1979. 
New York City firemen responded to an alarm at a hotel on West 42nd Street, not far from Times Square. They fought their way through the smoky corridors to extinguish a blaze inside one room, discovering two women's bodies. Okay. Mm they were stretched out on separate beds and were headless and also had their heads removed, legs doused with lighter fluid, and set on fire. Oh. The missing parts were never found. However, x-rays identified one victim as 22-year-old Dita Godarzi, mm-hmm. a Kuwaiti immigrant who earned her living as a prostitute. Godarzi's young companion in death was never identified. Oh. The crime reminded homicide detectives of another unsolved case. Teenage hooker Helen Sykes had disappeared from Times Square in January. Ended up turning up in Queens. Her throat was slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Her severed legs were found a block away, laid side by side in ritual fashion, as if still attached to the body. There were no leads in either case, and police were no closer to a suspect on May 5th, 1980, when teenage prostitute Valerie Street was found beaten and strangled, stuffed beneath a bed at a motel in Hosbrock Heights, New Jersey. In addition to the savage beating, her breast had been gnawed so violently that one was nearly severed. Um, no thank you. <laughs> I would like to pass on that. Thank right. You. Detectives recalled that a young nurse, Marianne Carr, had been brutally slain at the same motel December 16th of 1977, but the connection seemed tenuous at best. Uh-huh. The cylinder similarities were obvious on May 15th when prostitute Jean Rayner was found stabbed to death in a 29th Street hotel near Times Square. Her breast severed. The body set afire. Jesus. Okay. I lost my place. A week later, on May 22nd, officers were called back to the motel in Hosbrock Heights due to reports of a woman screaming. They captured a man emerging from the room and went inside to find his teenage victim naked, handcuffed to the bed, hysterical from pain, hysterical, hysterical (laughs) from pain and fear. She had been beaten, raped, sodomized, forced to perform oral sex at knife point, after which her assailant slashed her with his blade, biting her breasts until they bled. Jesus. The prisoner, 33-year-old Richard Cottingham, made an unlikely suspect at first glance, a respected family man from Lodi, New Jersey. He ran computers for a major health insurance firm. He didn't fit the profile. But on the other hand, arresting officers had relieved him of handcuffs, a leather gag, and two slave collars, for lack of better terms, a switchblade, and a replica pistol on top of several bottles of pills. So they oh. took all of that from him. Oh, okay. 
after they captured him. A search of his home turned up a bizarre trophy room, per se, containing personal effects from several of the murdered prostitutes. Upon further investigation of the suspect's background, it revealed two arrests from consorting with hookers in the early 70s, but both cases were dismissed. Uh-huh. In April of 1980, Cottingham's wife filed for divorce, charging him with extreme cruelty and refusal to engage in marital sex since late 1976. Oh. The divorce affidavits further in alleged that Cottingham was a habitual patron of gay bars and home spas in Manhattan. Heavy air quotes on the spas. Um, with him in custody, Cottingham smashed the lens of his glasses and attempted suicide by slashing his wrist with the glass. Oh! Because back then, glasses were actually made of actual glass. Actual glass. Yikes. So he survived that attempt and two others, and he was held under $250,000 bond while detectives were building their case against him. In addition to multiple murder counts, he was linked with the brutal abduction and rape of three surviving victims, including two prostitutes and a young housewife during 1978. Christ. In May of 1981, Cottingham was convicted of 15 felony counts related to the murder of Valerie Street, drawing a sentence of 173 to 197 years in prison. That's just for one. (laughs) That was just for Valerie. A year later, conviction on second-degree murder charges in the death of Marianne Carr added another sentence of 20 years to life. In 1984, he was convicted on three counts of second-degree murder involving Times Square prostitutes, earning him a final sentence of 75 years to life. Jesus. Fast forward to September 19th of 2010. Bergen County, New Jersey. Every time I say that, all I can think of is the Bergens from Trolls. (laughs) No offense to anyone who lives in Bergen County. So that's all I can think of. Um, Bergen County, New Jersey authorities say a man who brutally murdered five women in the late 1970s and early 80s has admitted to another long ago slaying. That was the headline that rang, or read. County Prosecutor John Molinelli told the record that Richard Cunningham pleaded guilty last month, so in August, to the 1967 slaying of Nancy Vogel. I, I believe the other last name in there is Nancy Shiava Vogel. The 29-year-old married mother of two was strangled, and her nude found body was found in a car in nearby Ridgefield Park. She was last seen three days prior when she left home to play bingo with friends at a local church. Molinelli said Cottingham and Vogel, both little fairy residents, knew each other, and it was believed he killed her inside her own vehicle. Jesus. 
The resolution of the Vogel case was the culmination of years of traveling to the prison to talk to Cottingham, said Molinelli. And part of the office's ongoing effort to close unsolved murder cases. He first drew the attention of authorities in May of 1980 when he was arrested for the attempted murder and rape of an 18-year-old prostitute at Hasbrock Heights Motel. So we're going back to that because mm-hmm. there's more to the story. Right. The maid heard screams coming from a room. They found the girl handcuffed to the bed with severe bite marks and a knife wound below the bite marks on her breast. Oh. So not only did he bite them so severely that they were already swollen, bruised. Damn near gone. Damn near obliterated. There was also a knife wound below where he had bit. Almost like he tried to chew it off then cut it off. Right. So the subsequent investigation linked him to other attacks in North Jersey and New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, he was convicted. In fact, we're going to fast forward again back to now. He is now 63. He is an inmate at New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. He received a life term for the Vogel slaying alone on top of his other sentences totaling more than 200 years for the other killing and this term will run concurrent to those sentences so he has to serve 200 years first and then the other life sentence darn not mad about molinelli would not comment on whether cottingham is a suspect for any other cold case slayings in the county Stating, we always look at many past defendants for possible connections with all cases, but we have nothing active at this time. So that was in 2010. Cottingham, now, as of today, we're recording this in March of 2022. So you're looking at him being now 75. He claims to have killed up to 100 women. Jesus Christ. As he lingers in prison with his health declining, investigators are racing against time, hoping to connect him to any unsolved murders. Eat a dick is what he can do. Right. In early 2021, he officially confessed to the 1974 abduction, rape, and murder of two teenage girls, bringing closure to one decades-old cold case. Um, A staff writer with the New Jersey Media Group um, that has covered his hearings tells A&E True Crime that he's not in great shape and it appears his health is failing. I think that played a role in him admitting to murders because he knows he's getting close to the end. Darn, he's dying. Right. So upset. After his arrest and initial conviction, Cunningham attempted suicide three times that we know of. Now he is in a wheelchair in deteriorating health. And he 
remains incarcerated at the state prison in New Jersey. His record of multiple murders never gained the notoriety of the sensational serial killers like Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy. Um, The news outlet's attention to Cunningham's murders were very short-lived because they were mostly against sex workers. And back then, no one really cared. Like, they got what they got. It wasn't okay to be a... They were less than... like less than human for for trying to make money by selling their bodies right um it ended up getting basically lost because the crime coverage at the time was more high profile in those areas than oh well this person's going around murdering prostitutes mm-hmm. so until the explosion of awareness about sexual violence brought on by the Me Too movement, crimes against sex workers were largely ignored by gen- the general media. Although Cottingham admitted to additional murders and even told his lawyer he wanted to come clean and give closure to families, neither his lawyer or the reporter believe that he has any remorse for these crimes. The reporter, whose name is... Steve Janowski and where is his name at? Sorry, I'm getting lost in the notes. Like not that I don't believe he I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't think he's doing it for anyone else but himself. Like, he's trying to get into what, whatever afterlife he believes in. Right. So, and all I have is the last name. I can't find the first name. Um, it's quoted, these admissions would, could be interpreted as self-serving for Cottingham, a very psychologically ill sadist. The confessions brought him the long denied attention, which is what he's wanting. Mm-hmm. So now he's 75 and he's confessing to all of these murders of these young girls who were essentially overlooked because of their profession at the time. Right. And because it wasn't good publicity for the newspaper to run the story about it. Mm-hmm. So he's... He's a garbage Yeah. Mainly because he's a murderer. He's a serial killer. But more, more so for the fact that he's only confessing because he's dying. Yeah. It, he's doing it like, you've been caught for how long now? 40, 40 years you've been caught and you've been rotting away and you're just now wanting to confess to all of these? Yeah. Because you're dying. You want the fame and the recognition because you're dying. 
that's the only thing he wants. He thinks he's gonna get some kind of. Um, what's like the word I'm looking for? Sympathy. Like inner peace from. Right. Admitting to all the shit that he's done. It's almost like he's wanting to confess his sins so he can get into heaven, I guess, for lack of a better analogy. Right. I just, I don't, I'm not a fan. No, he's not doing it for anybody but himself. Right. I agree with the last quote. He He's doing it for self-serving reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Agreed. So, with that being said, you can find all of our socials in our show notes. If you have any personal stories or any cases you want covered, go ahead and send us an email. Um, comment on our Facebook page. Comment on Instagram or anything. Our Twitter. Don't think that you just have to email us. Um, We will gladly accept your stories in whatever form or fashion you want to give them to us. Oh, and before I forget, we did get a response from one of my friends who went to Bobby Mackey's. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Good call. So let me find the email real quick. She didn't really go into um, detail very much. Um because I, I can believe that it's traumatic for her. Um, but she stated in her email that she finally feels comfortable talking. There is something wrong with that place. I got attacked when I was in the basement next to the portal to help. And I got grabbed on my leg. There's even an EVP saying, help me. I tried to leave the room and someone grabbed my arm. They took me outside and I had bruises on my arms and leg, or arm and leg. I didn't finish the tour. My camera kept messing up. I did get a picture of a ghost. I took it because I felt like there was someone behind me. The medium from the group had me go back in and tell them they couldn't go with me. And I have had horrible nightmares since I went. She didn't go into specifics on what those were. I didn't cry. Um, I've known her for a few years and for her to be that traumatized to where she won't even open up to me when she used to open up to me a lot because I was her hairstylist. Right. Um, Almost anyone knows that goes and gets their haircut. Hairstylists are like your therapist. Mm -hmm. So for her to not feel comfortable enough to tell me what's going on until months after the fact. That's major. That That's major. So I appreciate her taking the time to tell us what she did. Um, and if you guys have anything interesting like that, go ahead and let us know. It'll be more than, we really want to start doing um, listener episodes where you send in your stories and we tell them and yes you know, get freaked out and 
not want to sit in a dark room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we do every night we're at work. Yeah. It's fine. It's all fine. Granted, we have, you know, multiple monitors when we are at work that illuminate the room. But there's still dark corners mm-hmm. and unsettling. So. Very. <sighs> but anyways. With, with that, that said, stay safe. And try not to become the next 10-0. Yeah.